0: Welcome back, my inklings, to Catamampus Readings, the podcast where beginnings and introductions are poked, probed, and cautiously explored with a sharp stick. Today, we're stretching our readerly muscles with a book based primarily on Welsh mythology, which I didn't know I needed in my life until a YouTube channel showed me the gaping hole in my heart left by its absence. I'm sorry, Wales Baby. I promise I'll never overlook you again. For those of you that have never heard of the Book of Three, or the series it belongs to, The Chronicles of Prydain, allow me to provide you with this convenient summary from the back cover of the book. Tarin wanted to be a hero, and looking after a pig wasn't exactly heroic, even though Henwin was an oracular pig. But the day that Henwin vanished, Tarin was led into an enchanting and perilous world. With his band of followers, he confronted the Horned King and his terrible cauldron-born. These were the forces of evil, and only Henwen knew the secret of keeping the Kingdom of Pradane safe from them. But who would find her first? Some of that might sound a little familiar, especially if you're a 90s kid and grew up watching Disney movies. That's because there was a Disney film adaptation titled The Black Cauldron, which, as it happens, is the title of the second book in the series. And before you ask, no, I didn't know this was a book at the time. I just thought it was an underappreciated movie and that Ailanri was the princess that really should have stood in Mulan's place in the Disney princess lineup. Because she's actually a princess. I have opinions, okay? Fight me. Every time I think about the Black Cauldron and the books that inspired it, I wonder to myself, why this isn't more popular? Why don't we know more about Welsh mythology? After all, it's on the Isle of Britain, and goodness knows colonialism ensured Britain was all up in everyone's business, so why not Wales? Was it because the names are so hard to pronounce? Well, that can't be it, because Norse and Irish names are also hard to pronounce, but we know a lot about them. I think the real reason can be traced more or less back to a single person, and if that sounds weird, you might be surprised. You've probably heard of a guy named John Tolkien. He wrote more than any man has a right to, and in the process he more or less created the modern fantasy genre. Even people who have never read any of his works can recite most of his plot devices from memory because they've become more or less ubiquitous. But he wasn't the one that invented those things. He drew a lot of his material from older stories and mythologies, mostly Norse and Greek legends, The man himself said, in reference to Welsh mythology, I do know Celtic things, many in their original languages such as Irish and Welsh, and I feel for them a certain distaste, largely for their fundamental unreason. They have bright color, but are like a broken stained glass window, reassembled without design. So I would suggest that the reason Welsh mythology is so often left out in modern fantasy writing is simply that the man whose work served as the foundation for the genre actively rejected Welsh mythology as a potential source material. We've all seen the pattern, where something becomes popular and a bunch of other people want to create something like that. It's happened to the Avengers movies, it's happened to the Final Fantasy games, it's happened to the Hunger Games books. And you can bet your buttons it happened with the Lord of the Rings, and I can only guess why it didn't happen with the Chronicles of Pradain. But I think that's enough rambling. Let's push that aside for a minute and dig into the good stuff. The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander Chapter 1 The Assistant Pigkeeper Taran wanted to make a sword, but Cole charged with the practical side of his education, decided on horseshoes. And so, it had been horseshoes, all morning long. Tarin's arms ached, soot blackened his face. At last, he dropped the hammer and turned to Cole, who was watching him critically. Why, Tarin demanded, why must it be horseshoes? As if we had any horses! Cole was stout and round, and his great bald head glowed bright pink. Lucky for the horses, was all he said, glancing at Tarin's handiwork. I could do better making a sword, Tarin protested. I know I could. And before Cole could answer, he snatched the tongs, flung a strip of red-hot iron onto the anvil, and began hammering away as fast as he could. Wait, wait, cried Kull. That's not the way to go after it. Heedless of Call, unable even to hear him above the dim, Tarin pounded harder than ever. Sparks sprayed the air, but the more he pounded, the more the metal twisted and buckled until finally the iron sprang from the tongs and fell to the ground. Tarin stared in dismay. With the tongs, he picked up the bent iron and examined it. Not quite the blade for a hero, Call remarked. It's ruined. Taran glumly agreed. Looks like a sick snake, he added ruefully. As I tried telling you, said Cole, you had it all wrong. You must hold the tongs so. When you strike, the strength must flow from your shoulder and your wrist be loose. You can hear it when you do it right. There's a kind of music in it. Besides, he added, this is not the metal for weapons. Kull returned the crooked, half-formed blade to the furnace, where it lost its shape entirely. "'I wish I might have my own sword,' Taran sighed, "'and you would teach me sword-fighting.' "'Wished,' cried Kull. "'Why should you want to know that? There are no battles in Caer Dalban. "'We have no horses, either,' objected Taran. "'But we're making horseshoes.' "'Get on with you,' said Kull, unmoved.' that is for practice. And so would this be, Taran urged. Come, teach me sword fighting. You must know the art. Kull's shining head glowed even brighter. A trace of a smile appeared on his face as though he were savoring something pleasant. True, he said quietly. I have held a sword once or twice in my day. Teach me now, pleaded Tarin. He seized a poker and brandished it, slashing at the air and dancing back and forth over the hard-packed earthen floor. See, he called, I know most of it already. Hold your hand, chuckled Call. If you were to come against me like that with all your posing and bouncing, I'd have you chopped into bits by this time. He hesitated a moment. Look, you, he said quickly, at least you should know there is a right way and a wrong way to go about it. He picked up another poker. You know, he ordered, with a sooty wink. Stand like a man. Tarin brought up his poker. While Cole shouted instructions, they set to parrying and thrusting, with much banging, clanking, and commotion. For a moment, Tarin was sure he had the better of Kull, but the old man spun away with amazing lightness of foot. Now it was Tarin who strove desperately to ward off Kull's blows. Abruptly, Kull stopped. So did Taran, his poker poised in mid-air. In the doorway of the forge stood the tall, bent figure of Dalban. Dalban, master of Cair Dalban, was 379 years old. His beard covered so much of his face, he seemed always to be peering over a grey cloud. On the little farm, while Taran and Cole saw to the plowing, sowing, weeding, reaping, and all the other tasks of husbandry, Dalbin undertook the meditating, an occupation so exhausting he could accomplish it only by lying down and closing his eyes. He meditated an hour and a half following breakfast and again later in the day. The clatter from the forge had roused him from his morning meditation. His robe hung askew over his bony knees. "'Stop that nonsense directly,' said Dalbin. "'I'm surprised at you,' he added, frowning at Cull. "'There's serious work to be done.' It wasn't Kull, Tarin interrupted. It was I who asked to learn swordplay. I did not say I was surprised at you, remarked Dalbin. but perhaps I am, after all. I think you had best come with me. I'm noticing a bias in myself that I probably should have identified sooner. That is, I always like introductions where we can see the main character interacting directly with someone else. Introductions where the main character is isolated, introspective, or not the focus of the scene tend to irritate or bore me. That's not to say that such scenes can't be written well, or well executed, or even fulfill the standards that we've set for introductions. But I personally don't tend to rate them very highly simply because I don't enjoy them as much. Here in the Book of Three, we're immediately introduced to our main character, Taran, and his teacher, Cole. We see them disagreeing over what Tarin should be learning, then a bit of that mischievous father-son bonding action that I absolutely love to see with orphaned protagonists before elderly mentor figure Dolben is introduced. We don't know much about the setting yet, but we know enough to be getting on with. I also think it's really fitting that we're not introduced to the world at large right off, since one of the primary conflicts for Tarin is that he's isolated in Cair and doesn't know much about the world outside it. All in all, I'm giving this introduction a 4 out of 5 for giving us a chance to know the main character and his dreams, therefore also his major problems, right off the bat. Or right out of the forge, as the case may be. Now, last week, I promised to dig a little deeper into the field of literary criticism, so we shall. Though I'll have to keep it short, since we're almost out of time. For those of you that didn't major in literary studies in college, here's the simplified version. A critical theory is a set of lenses through which to view a specific text. And depending on which theory you're inclined to use, you may or may not also look at the author, the historical period in which the text was created, and similar texts that may have influenced the text in question. The earliest use of critical theory often cited is Plato's Republic, in which the philosopher offers what amounts to an argument in favor of a specific political philosophy. This style of criticism, citing past and present examples, is sometimes called academic criticism or traditional literary theory. This is what we did earlier when we considered not just the text itself, but the foundation of its genre and possible reasons for its lack of popularity in comparison to other works. With that in mind, I'm going to assign you a little bit of homework. Next time you pick up a book, try to consider what the author might have been communicating in the context of his historical time period, and other works that were popular at the time. As my Lit Crit professor once told us, if you turn off your brain to indulge in entertainment, then you're leaving yourself open to ideas that aren't yours. That's all I've got for you this week. I'll be seeing you again next week for a brief look at formalism and critical theory, and of course, a new book, which I haven't picked out yet. The random question of the day is, does your answer to what is your favorite color change if the color is for a different purpose? Say, a favorite color of the outside of a house as opposed to favorite color for a winter sweatshirt or jacket. Until next time, stay warm, dry, and well-fed, my inklings. This has been your host, Inkfire, and you have been a very determined audience to stick with me this long. I'll see you on the other side.